Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, let us get get our Bibles open and turn to 1 Peter. Uh, for those who have not been with us over the last few weeks, we have begun a series going through the book of 1 Peter. One reason is we like the whole book of the Bible and not just isolated verses. When the Holy Spirit has breathed and he's spoken and he's inspired words to us, he does it in a context, he does it in a setting, and we'll catch the voice of God even better when we can soak in the whole letter, the whole book, wherever possible. And so we're taking some months to work our way through First Peter. Two weeks ago, we just read the whole letter out loud. Last week, I... Um, had some flowers sprout in my buckets, shall we say, uh, looking at the first part of the letter of 1 Peter as Peter himself sort of lays out a context and understanding for what God's done in their lives. And for those who were here last week, let's review a bit. What was Peter's tone in the letter? Was he rebuking them and correcting them for being bad Christians? No. Was he trying to lay out a very detailed theological systematic explanation of salvation and redemption along the way? No, he wasn't. What was he trying primarily to do, folks? Do you remember? Oh, that was so encouraging for me. It's so encouraging that you remember from week to week. He's encouraging them. He's bringing encouragement to them because they're living their faith in a difficult time and place. Those who received the letter in the first place They were feeling the temperature rise in the cultural pot that they were living in. They were already experiencing ridicule and disdain from the neighbors and other members of their communities. In some places, in some settings, they were experiencing violence directed against them because of their faith. And there was an increasing sense of government oppression and legally sanctioned persecution of Christians at the time. And Peter writes to them to say, in the midst of your trials, take heart, take hope. Jesus is on the throne. And so we're living by faith in the midst of this trouble. And so we're going to focus our attention on verses 10 through 16, but it'll help us if we get a little bit of a running start. Are you ready? Fashion your seatbelts. Here we go. So uh, Peter's letter starts. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world. And we said, our identity is that we are chosen aliens. We are chosen by God. We belong to God, but we don't belong to this world. We live here, but it's not our homeland. And and then Peter lists a bunch of places through uh, the various provinces of the Roman Empire that are now modern day Turkey. And he says in verse two, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And then we begin this section that we had identified by the buckets last week where we saw that some of what Peter's talking about has already happened. Some is the present reality that you and I are living in right now. And some is about our hope for that day that Larry was talking about earlier. Not a wishful thinking hope, but that we're anchored today in a day that's coming. And so 
uh, Peter continues here. He says, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance. Sorry. Inheritance that will never perish, never perish, spoil or fade. And where is it kept for us? Kept in heaven for you who through faith. He's talking about the same thing here when he says hope and faith, who through faith are shielded by God's power until that's future tense, right? Until the coming of the salvation. Same thing he's talking about with inheritance, salvation, the salvation that is ready to be revealed. Yes, in the in the when. Has it happened yet? Not fully. So we have the reality today of new birth. We're living today by faith and we're living in hope for some things that are yet to come. And he continues. He says in this in what in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. But good news, these griefs and trials, these have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold. You remember last week I said it's your most valuable possession out of everything that you have. It's not your family. It's not your 501. No, sorry. It's not your 401k. It's not your retirement. It's not your house. It's your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Most valuable thing. Your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine and result in praise, honor, and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. And, and the scripture says, Peter's continuing. He says that though you have not seen him, Part of our condition today is we don't get to see Jesus face to face. But despite that, he says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him, you believe in him. And you are filled with a glorious and inexpressible joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. There's a day coming. We're going to see him face to face. And as we live in love for Jesus now, we're actually bringing into today the salvation that will come in its fullness when he appears. Are we together? Brett very kindly has taken care of podcasting the recording. So you can get the audio for that. That's your visual. Feel free to take a photo. Now, Peter's not done here. I tell you what, if Peter signed off at that point and said, God bless you, we would have all been encouraged. But he doesn't stop there. He's still overflowing with his excitement about this good news. And so pick it up with me in verse 10. In verse 10, it says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, and the prophets he's talking about are this two-thirds of the book. He's talking about the prophets of the Old Testament. And he says what they were doing, they spoke of the grace that was going to come to you and me. And he says those prophets, they were searching intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them, 
was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah. Same word, Christ, there. It's just been translated differently to make an emphasis here. And the glories that would follow. The sufferings of the Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them, presumably by the Spirit of Christ, that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who've preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Isn't that something? We have received the most anticipated news in all of history. This good news of the sufferings and glories of the Messiah is the thing that the prophets were waiting for, that the preachers of the gospel have proclaimed, and that the angels long to get a closer look at. This is an amazing kind of news. This is, he describes the prophets of the Old Testament like kids who are hunting all around the house to find where the Christmas presents are hidden. It's like they were eagerly looking, they're anticipating, they're trying to find out what's the spirit of Christ pointing to. I know something's coming. I want the details. Listen, let this sink in. For so many generations, the Holy Spirit was at work to prepare what you and I have now received. That's amazing grace. That is an amazing blessing. And there's two aspects of the Holy Spirit's work. How is the Holy Spirit preparing? What was he doing? Well, Peter describes two categories of messengers, prophets and preachers. He says the prophets who foretold and he says equally by the Holy Spirit, he says that those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What were the prophets doing in the Old Testament? They were pointing forward, Peter says, to the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that would follow. And then what are these Holy Spirit-inspired preachers after Jesus pointing to as they proclaim the message? It's the same thing. They were proclaiming the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that would follow. Because Peter says, when they, those were the prophets, when they spoke, of the things that have now been told to you by those who preach to you. The things that are being talked about are the same things. Whether it was Old Testament prophets or New Testament preachers, it's all about Jesus. He's the center. It all revolves around him. And to the Holy Spirit, this is the message of the Spirit. Please understand, it has not changed in thousands of years. The Holy Spirit's obsession is still the glory of Jesus Christ. It's the good news that God came incarnate from heaven in his son, Jesus Christ. He lived a sinless life. He died and he gave his life on the cross. He suffered for you and me to take our place in God's judgment so that we can receive God's righteousness and by his great birth, by his great mercy, receive new birth into a living hope that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us, who through faith are shielded by God's power. This is the message that the Spirit has been proclaiming for thousands of years. Can I challenge us, please, as a church? 
don't get distracted by other things. Because there's all kinds of things that are out there that can grab our attention like glitter and confetti, but they're not the main thing. And they're not the central message of the Holy Spirit. There's much today in our time that's being said under the name of the Holy Spirit that doesn't have enough to do with the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that will follow. That is not centered on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's the Holy Spirit's focus and his obsession. Whether it's Pentecost, whether it's Peter writing, whether it's today, he hasn't, the Holy Spirit does not have an attention deficit problem. He is still focused on the glory of Jesus Christ. And even angels long to look at these things. So could we please not get bored with it? Now, Peter's not finished because the next verse, verse 13, he gets to where he's going with all of this. As encouraging as it's all been, as much as a valuable exhortation that it is to come on, let's get Jesus back in the center, he's challenging us about what it looks like to live in this hope and what living by this faith is meant to look like. And so verse 13 starts like this. Therefore, which, which is like a, should be a flashing light on your Bible reading dashboard. When you see therefore, ask what it's there for. And, and he says, therefore, so let's pay attention. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Familiar so far, right? Except for this emphasis. He's not just saying it's going to happen. He's saying, set your hope fully on this grace. And he continues, as obedient children, don't conform any longer to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. No, instead, there's a new way of living. What's it look like? But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Because it's written, be holy as I am holy. Are you hearing that? And here's the thing. It means that Peter is adding something into our bucket now. And he's saying that the life of hope, that living in this living hope. The life of hope is a holy life. So. And you and I, brothers and sisters, also have to drive the stake of holiness in place in our lives as part of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's break down what Peter has to say here. Here it is. He's got kind of three statements here. And the first one is this. Set your hope on grace. The second is don't conform to your own evil desires. And the third is when he says, be holy as I'm holy, he's saying, shape your life, be conformed to the things God desires instead, conform to the desires of God himself. So looking at what's it look like to set our hope on grace. It's a grace that Peter says isn't fully here yet. Hope is not about what we've already received. Hope is about what we are awaiting, what we haven't yet received. It says there's a grace for us to set our hope on here. And setting our hope means, guys, our mindset 
really does matter. It matters. Where are we going to set our hope? What are we anchoring our hearts to? Because what we anchor our hearts to is going to make a difference to where the boat ends up going, right? And Peter's implication here is that you're in my spiritual health, the actual vibrancy or lack thereof in our faith. It's up to us, not to mom and dad, not to my spouse, not to the worship team, not to the pastor, but it's our own responsibility. Nobody can set your hope for you. That's something that each of us do ourselves. And it's something that each of us do on like a daily basis or repeatedly through the day. Where are we hooking our hearts? Guys, that's up to you and me. It's not up to someone besides ourselves. Parents, we can help our children. But if you're still here upstairs today, it's on you, kids. Set your hope on the grace of the Lord. Peter challenges you and I to be the responsible party, regardless of whether your spouse is or isn't following Jesus well, regardless of whether the church you're in is a wonderful church and fulfilling all of your hopes or whether church is being a very disappointing, painful place for you. He challenges each of us as believers in Jesus Christ to take responsibility, to respond to this glorious news that even angels long to get a closer look into and to set our hope that much more clearly on Jesus himself. And so I want to challenge us. Watch out, guys, for the consumer mentality that so pervades our culture. Because we tend to think of ourselves as people that other people are supposed to do something for us. That's part of the American dream. It's a weird conflict with our self-sufficiency. But when it comes to participating in stuff, we choose to opt in or not based on what we think it's giving and bringing to ourselves. And how we think about the process of faith and hope and holiness and the relationship we have with the Lord, how we think about that, it really matters. One of the things that my wife struggles with in the healthcare industry is the way that things have moved from a doctor-patient relationship to a provider-client style relationship. And that's been driven by capitalism and the American uh, financial side of the industry. And, And so upper management sent out some various memos for the staff about how they should treat and behave towards the clients. And Karen actually took a Sharpie at the office and she went through, she crossed out client every time it showed up on these posted memos and wrote patient over each one to emphasize these are not a commodity, they're people. It's not a consumer. This is a person that we're caring for. That was her motivation. And But it's also the case that when we admit that we're a patient, we're saying, one, I'm needy. I don't have this all together. And two, the responsibility for my health is I've got to play a part in that. The doctor may have a role in helping me and caring for me, but it's not all up to the doctor. It's, it's on me as well to become healthy again. And our spiritual health is not up to someone else. We ourselves have to make up our minds to seek the Lord, to trust the Lord, to rely on the Lord, because nobody else can do your faith for you. Hello? And so I want to urge us, dial up your mindset. Respond to what Peter says here. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is given to you. And there's a sobriety to this. 
he describes it like a reality check. He says, with minds that are alert and fully sober. Listen, don't be intoxicated by the world. Have a reality check and realize we've got to set our hope beyond what anything in this world can give us to the Lord himself. There's another translation. I have an older translation that uses the phrase self-controlled here, being alert and self-controlled. And when Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace, guys, the implication is we definitely can be not doing that. That's why we need the urging he brings us. And the fact is we tend to put our hope in other things, things that feel more immediate, things that are more in this bucket than this bucket, things that we can reach to here and now without having to hope and wait and reach into the unseen. We look for the visible and we hook our hope much more on those things. We put, maybe it's our own abilities and efforts and resources. And so we set our hope more on earning or achieving than we do on grace. But the call here is to set our hearts fully on grace. Maybe we put our hope on someone else besides the Lord. Maybe there's someone else who's, if <laughs> if my husband would just do more with the children, and if he'd just be a better spiritual leader in our home, then it'd be then they would behave better and they would grow better. No, our hope has to be fully on the grace of God and on the Lord, not on someone else to do it for us. And we might not be putting our hope fully on those other things, but the call is to put our hope fully on grace, not 50% grace and 50% something else. He's talking about a full dependence on the grace of God coming to us through Jesus Christ. And it was it was just this week. Uh, I... I Some of you know that in recovering from a surgery myself, I felt like I've not been at 100%. I haven't had the productivity levels so that my own sense of worth tends to be related to. And so as soon as I start feeling better, I start feeling overwhelmed by how and frustrated by all the things that I wish I could be getting done or I'm trying to get done that haven't gotten done. And I was really frustrated one day this week by how the amount of stuff coming into my inbox was just exceeding my ability to keep up with it, let alone work on some of the things that I I felt like were also really important to do before Ryan and I head to Zambia this week. And so I was expressing to Karen how I felt about it. Um, And I'll admit it wasn't the most elegant and beautiful expression of how I felt about my frustration. And Karen was the one who really had the clearer insight on it than I did. And what she told me was, I think you need to stop trying to get that all done and actually spend some time with the Lord. And she was so right. It was so right. In in my efforts to do all of this for the Lord, I wasn't depending fully on the grace. I wasn't hoping fully in the grace of God. I was really hoping in my own ability just to keep up with this and to get things done. And that's one of the ways that someone else can help us. But in the end, who is it up to, to set his hope fully on grace? wasn't up to her. It was up on me to shut the laptop and just pray, set my hope back on the grace of God. And brothers and sisters, this is not a battle that goes away. This is part of the reality of living in the here and now. This is what it looks like. And the challenge of the question, how are we living in hope, actually does require a very intentional battling on our part. 
You see, for the recipients of Peter's original letter, when this was the word of God to them before it was the word of God to us, they were facing open hostility from their neighbors, the non-Christians in their community. Uh, I mentioned earlier an increasing informal progressing into formal governmental oppression for their faith as a persecuted religious minority in the Roman Empire. And for them, living by hope meant trusting God for their future livelihood if their homes were confiscated, if they were driven out of their communities, if the wage earner in their family was imprisoned, even if they died because of their faith. And right now in our time, those are the same realities for brothers and sisters we have in other parts of the world. That was the reality for Claudia's family in Romania. That's the reality today for brothers and sisters of ours in Nepal, where they've suffered loss of homes, have been physically driven out of communities for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have friends in India. I've just recently been with some of the friends, people you know, fellow pastors who work in their network that have been killed by Hindu fundamentalists because they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in the United States, we may not, we're not facing that kind of direct physical persecution for our faith. But our need to live by faith is no less. Our need to set our hope fully on the grace of God is no less. But where we get confused is we think we can go ahead and trust on the visible things that we've got instead because we ha those haven't been stripped away from us. And yet there are a couple of elements of living by hope, living by faith that are true in every culture and every age about trusting the Lord. Uh, and here they are. Um, boom. All right. You're already there, folks. Right. What are they? Trusting God for our future provision. It's where Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God. Trusting God for our future provision, whether we're in a time of plenty or whether we're in a time of lack. The, the condition of the stock market, whether it's going up, up, or whether it plummets in a day, it doesn't determine our destiny. And nor is it, the nor is it where we set our hope for joy or blessing. It's also not, who is in government office at any particular level. That doesn't determine whether we experience God's presence or his peace. Similarly, believers throughout the centuries have, have understood living by faith means I have to trust God for my physical safety and well-being, whether that's a time I'm enjoying blessing or whether it's a time of physical suffering. That includes whether it's fear of persecution or whether it's fear of coronavirus, brothers and sisters. Our hope and our trust has to be in the Lord. Living by hope means we trust God for our physical safety, and we pray that we'd have sufficient courage that whether by life or by death, that God would be glorified in our bodies. So we do not live in fear for the future. We set our hope fully on the Lord Jesus Christ and on the grace that comes to us. And when Jesus is revealed, this body will be replaced and will receive a resurrection body that literally is beyond our ability to imagine and dream, and that all the tears will be wiped away from our eyes, and the things that we wrestle with and we struggle with today will be transformed into praise, honor, and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. And Peter says, one of the ways we express living by hope is that we live in holiness. So he says, set your hope fully on grace, and don't conform to your evil desires. These are two sides of the same coin. 
when we're setting our hope on the graces to be revealed, that is coming in the future. And it means that today I don't have to be a slave to the self-gratification that I crave for right now. He says, don't be conformed to your evil desires. Wow. You know, I, I mentioned that this is a battle that doesn't go away. For Peter, this is the critical battle. When he talks about external pressures, the persecution, the sufferings, the griefs, and the trials, his what he advises us as believers to do is, he says, you're not fighting against these. You're walking through them by the grace of God, and they're refining your faith so that you receive praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. But when he comes to the internal pressures and and battle with our own desires, he's telling us, fight that fight with all you've got. So often we spend our energy fighting on the external battles. But what the Spirit's pointing to here is, there's a primary battle and it happens in here, not out there. He says, don't be conformed to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. This is an essential battle to fight that conforming pressure of our own desires. And, and it's so connected to our setting our hope on grace because the desires that we have cry out to be satisfied now. And what hope does is it says, I'm going to trust God to be my full fulfillment and satisfaction, even though I'm saying no to desires that don't line up with God's desires. And so setting our mind on hope means turning away from our own evil desires. And here's, here's the implication, guys. Peter's saying you can't trust your own desires. Who said our desires were trustworthy? Right? There's no parent thinks that their toddler's desires are all going to be pure and right and good. Right? You don't let your two-year-old pick their diet, pick their bedtime, pick their, because they won't make choices that are good for them. And the problem is not just their judgment. It's that their desires aren't trustworthy. Their desires that cry out that I, I'm speaking on behalf of the internal desire, right? Your internal desire, my internal desires, my children's internal desires all cry out saying, I have the, I know exactly what you need and you will be happy if you just get this. But in fact, so many of those desires aren't for our good, let alone for God's glory. And in our society now, there's a prominent philosophy that says, if you say no to your actual desires, that you are being inauthentic. You're not being true to who you really are if you suppress and repress the desires that you have. Instead, you should not only have the freedom to express them, but you're supposed to. But the Bible tells us something different. It says, don't trust your desires. Trust God's desires. Align your desires with God's desires because only God's desires are the ones that are right and good and true and lovely and actually good for you and me. Does that make sense? From the very Garden of Eden, which was a paradise, a place of the presence of God, without suffering, without conflict, without difficulty, right? 
What did God do? He set in place a demonstration that we need to trust him over our own desires. He set in the garden a tree that was very attractive. It was lovely. It was good for food. It wasn't anything bad about the tree, except that he said, no, say no to the attractiveness of that tree and trust me and walk with me instead. And the fruit that God said not to eat in the garden, it was a desirable fruit. And the original fall came because man and woman together chose to follow their desires instead of God's desires for them. And some of our desires, some desires you and I have correspond to legitimate actual needs that God's given us. If you're fasting, you shouldn't do it forever or, or, you'll, or you'll get to the final bucket sooner than you planned. And the, right? But much of our desires, in fact, the ones that cry out loudest to us, they're just itches. They're begging to be scratched. But when we scratch them, do they go away? Momentarily. Then do they come back weaker or stronger? Stronger. And so Peter says, don't be conformed to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. You've learned something new now. You've seen things that even the angels long to look into. So don't live just for the instant gratification of your own desires now. He says later in chapter four, you spent enough time in your life doing that. There's something better, a better way to live now. Because the life ruled by our own desires is not freedom. It's slavery. And when we respond to the one who called us, that's verse 15. That when we respond to the one who called us, we have to live as he is. Not just however we want. Now, the scope of what that touches is probably every area of our life. One of the areas that we can be confident that Peter has in mind because he brings it up again in chapter four, is sexuality. One of the areas that he's definitely talking about is sexual holiness, where our own desires are not for our good much and most of the time here. God's word paints for us a picture of sexual intimacy being blessed and beautiful in the context of a covenant relationship that he calls marriage, a lifelong marriage between a husband and a wife, and says that any sexual relationships that are happening outside of that context are sin. Don't trust your desires. Be holy as he is holy. That's what it's written. And so it's going to touch on our desires because whether it could be something as seemingly innocent as just spending time watching Netflix shows that are basically benign, but are the substitute for me putting fully my hope in grace and praying and trusting the Lord, or something as destructive as watching pornography. Don't trust your own desires. Conform your desires to God's desires. He's called us to himself. And the walk of hope is a walk of holiness. And so it means that sleeping together between a man and a woman who aren't married to each other or a same-sex couple, it's not God's way. And it's not compatible with genuine discipleship. The grace of God that's appeared, that has come to us, it's a calling to himself, and that calls us to live as, as he is in holiness. I am ever so encouraged, though, by the way the Lord himself talked to Cain 
about Cain's own evil desires. This is way back in Genesis when sin was running rampant and brothers against brother. And Cain, as an older brother, is jealous of God's favor and approval on the life of his younger brother. And God comes to Cain and he says to him, why are you thinking like this? Why are you, why are you letting these emotions take control of yourself? He says this, sin is crouching at your, at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. I want you to know, God says you can win this battle. It may feel like you're going to be ambushed by your desires, that you're ambushed by temptation, that the desires are too strong, but there is a grace that comes through loving Jesus that draws this grace into our lives that enables us to live in holiness because his grace is actually sufficient for us here and now. And when Cain blew it and God came to him and said, God's challenge was, you don't have to make it worse now just because you've already missed it. Don't keep going down that road. God says, I'm giving you a do-over. He says, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? God comes to us. And he says, look, you've already blown it. You've already missed it. But you don't have to be a slave to temptation and to evil desires. You don't have to even say, oh, because I know that upset God and God didn't look on that with favor. I'm doomed and God won't take me back. No, quite the opposite. God comes to Cain and says, you've got a second chance. You've got a do-over. And that grace is what's come in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel for us. And simply put, holiness is this. It's living in conformity to Jesus Christ and his commands instead of conformity to our own desires. And the way we overcome sinful desires is by the power of a greater desire, a more rich and vibrant affection. What Peter calls, Peter says, Though you haven't seen him, you love him. And that love for Jesus is what you want to cultivate in your life and in your heart. You do that by setting your hope fully on the grace that comes through him. And because the one who's called us is holy, we long for holiness. It's the prayer and cry of our hearts. And it's because he said, "Because be holy because I'm holy. Friends, we've been born again into this living hope which is an obedience to Jesus Christ. Verse two of chapter one here. And Peter's phrase here, I glossed over it just simply so I can come back to it now, where he says the translation we were reading, verse 14 says, as obedient children, don't conform to evil desires. The the phrase that Peter uses, it's kind of a Semitic expression. It could also be translated as, as children of obedience. It's who we are. He's given us a new identity through this new birth, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Living by faith in our days, it is a battle. The internal battle is probably more important than any of the external ones. And we live it by faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'd like to invite us, let's take a minute, let's pray. Where there's been a, If there's a specific area where you know your desires aren't in conformity with the Lord's, bring that before him. Now, as you battle that, Ask him to help your desires, but also make your determination to say of saying no to those desires part of your worship to the Lord. He sees that, and you can offer that to him as well.